Huh? Are we? Do you want me to do? The, do you want me to do the thing? <laughs> Should I do the thing? I, I do want to do the thing. I just wanted. To, I wanted. To, I, I thought maybe we'd briefly. You want to know what this is about first? We would briefly talk about what it is we're going to talk about, but that's fine. We can just jump in. I, I, you know. Hi everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? Jeff, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, One observation is that as we were recording this in Williamsburg, it's another day of not sun, but sort of drizzle and clouds. Ever since that tropical storm, Orphelia, kind of came through last weekend, uh, I feel like it's been very uh, standard, non-standard weather-wise. Like, normally at the end of September, it's, like, warm and still hot and summer. And this just feels like we're, you know, in, like, November or December not uh, September. So very, very odd weather-wise, I feel like. You know, and we're not seeing, like, leaves change or any of these other, like, signs of signs of fall that would be... It would be okay if it's a little chilly, if we could get into kind of fall weather, but it doesn't seem to be happening right. here. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. But I, I do look forward to pumpkin patches uh, and apple picking. Although... There's nowhere to apple pick here, Marcus. You gotta go you to gotta, You gotta drive to... Yeah. yeah. Have we talked about this on the pod before? I mean, we've covered most topics. No, this is just something that... This is something that every parent in Williamsburg knows deep in their soul is that there's nowhere to take your kids apple picking in, in this area. And the problem is that also Charlottesville is a nice place to go for like a day or a weekend. So you get a lot of D.C. people that drive down and they take advantage of the nice, you know, apple picking restaurants and all that kind of stuff that Charlottesville has to offer. So it's crowded. It's busy. And, if you go on a weekend. And UVA is there, which is unfortunate, you know, well, kind of drags you down. You know, that's nice. That's, that's good architecture. <laughs> All right. Well, in the last episode of, of this podcast, we were talking about speechifying at the United Nations. And the uh, president of Ukraine, Zelensky, was there making a pitch at the, in the UN General Assembly for the support of countries in Ukraine's attempt to repel the aggressive invasion of Russia. And you made the crazy claim that these kinds of speeches are important in international relations. And we had a little discussion about that. And uh, as part of this discussion, it, it seemed to be coming out that you think that this is really like the only aspect of the UN that is useful is people coming to give speeches there. You made some comments that imply that you don't think the UN is particularly effective as an institution. And so I thought we could drill down a little deeper into this question today. So Marcus, Tell me why you think the UN doesn't work. Okay, Jeff. I am going to actually object to the, the premise of the question and to the question itself. And the, and the reason I'm going to do so is that the UN, the United Nations, that, like, that term, United Nations, is so broad, it's almost impossible to have an articulate conversation without defining first what we're talking about, right? Because as, as you know, as everybody listening to this podcast probably knows, the UN does lots of different things, and it consists of lots of different, like, sub-organizations, and it's connected to other organizations. It's engaged in, you know, World Health Organization stuff. It's engaged in peacekeeping. It's engaged in the United Nations Security Council. Lots of things going on. So I think what we're going to have to do in order to have this be, like, a, a, a compelling conversation is, is sort of drill down on exactly what we're, we're talking about. I was referring mostly to what I view as an inadequate United Nations Security Council system uh, for the, the present period that we're living in. So if we think about the United Nations from a security perspective and what the UN Charter uh, laid out, this idea of collective security, the, the notion that the UN was going to be a body that would help keep the world uh, at peace, it would prevent war, it would provide mechanisms for uh, providing you know transparency and reputation building and allowing you know states to to negotiate and interact with one another in ways in which they could avoid war because they could find you know bargains and they could you know figure out basically how to how to get on with with life without resorting to the worst uh, case possible which is which is fighting which is having conflict and it seems to me in the present period in twenty twenty three what has happened is that we've seen over time the United Nations Security Council uh, become less and less effective at doing exactly the thing that it was charged to do, which was prevent, uh, prevent conflict, prevent war, keep the world peaceful. And I think there's, there's a number of different reasons for that, but I'll, I'll just throw one out there and we can, we can talk about you know, what you think about this would be the, the constitution of the Security Council itself, right? The, the permanent members, United States, United Kingdom, uh, 
what was the Soviet Union, now Russia, China, France, are countries that were at one time major powers. You can make the argument that they still are major powers. But it made sense after World War II, if you looked around the international system and said, who are we going to pick to kind of be these you know, leaders of, of the UN and make sure that everything is stable? They, they were reasonable choices. And then, of course, you have these rotating members, and that, that made some sense too. But if you fast forward you know, from the post-World War II period to 2023, it's not clear to me that the constitution of the, the permanent membership makes a lot of sense uh, anymore. And I think the Ukraine war is, is a good example of that. We have one of the permanent members of the Security Council with veto power, uh, basically being, in many people's view, myself included, the aggressive state, the one that's causing conflict, the one that's causing war uh, in an organization that was created for precisely the opposite. So I just think it, from, a, from a pure sort of like a membership question about the, the Security Council, just thinking about who the members are in the, in the current period uh, is not only... Uh, problematic from for the local sort of reason of the invasion of Ukraine, but also it's just not representative. I think of of you know the the international system as it as it exists in twenty twenty three versus you know nineteen forty five or nineteen forty six or nineteen forty seven or whatever. So to me, it's it's the the Security Council that gets most of the blame. Uh, and when I think about an ineffective UN, that's where I put most of my attention. So what, what do you what do you think about that, Jeff? Yeah, I, I think I kind of agree. You know, the Security Council is clearly dysfunctional in the sense of can it prevent a conflict between Russia and somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's just no way for it to do it. It's not built into the structure because the five permanent members of the UN Security Council have a veto over whatever the Security Council decides. So as long as Russia doesn't want to sanction Russia for its invasion, Russia's not getting sanctioned. So this is the, the structure of the thing prevents this way of thinking about being effective. Exactly. But I guess that I would say we should think about effectiveness a little more broadly than that. But before I talk about what I mean by that, I hate, I hate to do this. I always hate to do this, but I think I'm going to have to go a little IR professor on people and back us up and talk a little bit about uh, some ways that theory implies international institutions should work, right? And I know we... Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I know. This, this, is, this is the direction you want to go in? I just, I'm going to sit think back it's... and listen to this. This is going to be great. <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I, want, I want 20 seconds on this. I think we just need like a baseline <laughs> of how different kind of uh, schools of IR thought think about um, international institutions, okay? Let's go. Just in case there's someone listening to this for whom that will be helpful. Okay. Now, you know, I hate to be the person bringing up IR paradigms. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it (laughs) just this once. This is so out of character. I don't know. I don't know what's gotten into me today. Probably many of the people listening who are forced to listen to this um, have heard of kind of a few big IR paradigms. And they have kind of different approaches generally to international institutions if you think about IR in this particular way. So many people have heard of realism, which is maybe the oldest kind of IR paradigm way of thinking about the world in which power and states are kind of central to to their way of thinking. And realist scholars tend to think of international institutions as, you know, the kind of result of power politics. So uh, what powerful states want, they will get through those international institutions, whether or not the international institution is there. So for, for realist scholars, often we think about international institutions as not being particularly impactful. The kind of outcome that you get via the institution is what you would have gotten anyway, right? So that's kind of how realists think about this. Scholars who follow more like liberal institutionalist tradition think about institutions as solving the problem of how do you convene a group to solve issues? How do you get diplomacy to happen? How do you reduce the transaction costs that are associated with making deals? So rather than having a bunch of countries make individual agreements with each other, let's have a big room. We'll call it the General Assembly. Countries can come together and make deals there. And that reduces some of the friction that would prevent us from getting an agreement. And so uh, for institutional scholars, that this kind of convening authority of the institution is really important. And then there are constructivist scholars, those, those people exist, and, and they think about um, institutions often in terms, in terms of ideas and norms that they instantiate in international affairs. So this idea of what is acceptable in international relations could be solidified by the fact that the UN has issued some decision that this is a thing that is okay to do in international relations, and this is a thing that is not okay to do, and that other states will see this this norm and respect it. Um, and so for 
constructivist scholars, norms are kind of a central way that institutions can affect the world by helping to kind of set these norms up in international affairs. Did I do any uh, damage to those those paradigms with that explanation, Marcus? No, I actually, as a sort of IR theory primer, I thought you did a, a very nice job. Oh, excellent. Congratulations. It's been, it's been yeah. many years since I've thought about these things because in general, they don't matter and aren't important. But, but for, for just for this one time, okay. I'll, I'll bring these out. So, you know, there are kind of different schools of thought in thinking about how an institution like the UN would matter. And kind of think modern international relations scholars, uh, contemporary scholars, I'll say, often think about this in terms of like a much more narrow kind of a calculus. So like, what are the, what does the makeup of the UN Security Council mean for who gets international aid, right? These kind of uh, much narrower questions about how the UN functions in the nitty gritty, in reality, right? Does being on the UN Security Council as a rotating member give you some benefit in international affairs in terms of aid flows or in terms of like uh, mediating a conflict or something like that? Do UN peacekeepers make a difference when they come to particular kinds of war zones versus other kinds of war zones? And th these are the kinds of questions that I think a lot of institution scholars focus on today when they think about when they think about the UN. We kind of moved away from this big picture question of how the UN matters. So with, with that kind of as, as the backdrop, I agree with you that these debates about UN effectiveness are hampered by the fact that the UN is like really this giant amorphous set of institutions that are kind of vaguely connected to each other. And so when you think about its effectiveness, it's really, it's really hard to think about what does that question mean, right? And there, there are a number of ways you could define effectiveness. And I think when we talk about it in terms of like the Russia-Ukraine conflict, what we're really talking about is its effectiveness in terms of conflict prevention, right? I, I think that's what it really comes down to. Why did the UN fail to stop Russia from invading Ukraine? If this institution is there to achieve international peace and security, then clearly it's a failure when you have this violation of international peace and security. But there's still, I think, a problem here in terms of how would we know if, if, if the UN were, were right or wrong? And I, I get kind of, uh, we run into this problem a lot in political science, right? Where you have a kind of a selection problem in understanding effectiveness. And this is a very amorphous concept. The first problem you have is, what is the universe of cases that we want to use to evaluate the effectiveness of an institution like the UN? So is it, is it every conflict in the world? that should we, should we give the UN credit for forestalling every conflict that doesn't happen? Should we cast blame on the UN for every conflict that does happen? Or is it something narrower than that? Is it like every conflict where there's a concerted attempt at diplomacy in the UN? Right. Only those when those fail, should we blame the U.N. for their failure? The problem there is, would we even see all those attempts, concerted attempts to forestall some conflict? So they're the, like understanding what the pool of cases is that we want to use to evaluate the U.N.'s effectiveness is, is the first problem. And then once we have those cases that we're concerned with, there's the problem there that the, the failures are going to be much more visible than the successes. We run into this a lot, too, in international affairs. So it's easy to see with every war that the UN failed to stop that war, right? It's just like very clear, okay? <laughs> Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, the UN failed to stop that one, right? And we can say that about every war that happens. But it's much harder to see the conflicts where diplomatic efforts worked, where they averted conflict, right? Like those are outside of our understanding, right? They're not in the pages of the newspaper or the, or the whatever, wherever you're getting your news. So that's the big problem, right? You see the failures and not the successes. And so when you're doing this kind of mental tally of, okay, here are the wins for the UN and here are the losses for the UN, you know, all we see are the losses. There might be some wins there that we, that we can't see very clearly. So I think like just the question is really hard. Right. So before we even get to this, well, you're the one that asked the question. So I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a hard question. No, I'm, I'm I'm pushing back against your critique of the UN as like dysfunctional in terms of its ability to uh, stop conflict. Yes, the the Security Council. When you look at the Security Council, it is going to fail to stop Russia from invading every time. Right. That I will give you that. Right. Russia is a permanent member and can veto any action against it. But the, the fact is, it's very hard to evaluate the U.S. Security Council's success on the whole because we can't see all the successes. Um, and I think that that's an important point when you look at an institution like this. If we take Russian invasions out of the pool 
and say, okay, we're not going to blame the UN for those. Does it does it do a good job otherwise? Well, I mean, your your uh, sort of idea, or it's not it's not even an idea. It's sort of like a, a statement of fact that the the dogs that don't bark um, are difficult to identify. Like it, it's it's like from Sherlock Holmes or something, right? It's like the the dogs that don't bark at night hard to know that they're there because they're not barking, and the ones that bark are easy, very easy to see. I I agree with it. That was an excellent Sherlock Holmes summary. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, yeah, Sherlock Holmes was, a, was an author that wrote about dogs. You, you've clearly read that that uh, story quite a few times with that. <laughs> right, right. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that that's – but that's – to me, that's so self-evident to, like, not even be, like, interesting. I mean, I know from a research methods perspective, you might find that interesting. But, like, to me, yes, you're, of course you're right. Like, we don't – it's very difficult to see the, the things that the UN prevented and give credit to those things because we, we didn't see them. I, I think, though, that, that sometimes – that's a little bit overstated. I mean, I, I, there are, I believe, you know, sort of examples of um, the United Nations doing a good job at mediation, let's say, yes. doing a good job at sort of like facilitating diplomacy. Absolutely. You can say, well, okay, well, I can make a reasonable argument that, you know, maybe in the absence of this mediation or this diplomacy, maybe there would have been a conflict, right? So I think there are some ways to kind of say, probabilistically, you know, the UN maybe, you know, did do, did do something uh, uh, well. But but this idea that like you know it's just about you know preventing Russia invading uh, Ukraine or just about preventing the United States invading Iraq. This is another example that people like yep. to po- point to the second Iraq War where you going yeah where you know Colin Powell went in with a vial of anthrax that wasn't anthrax and said you know this is a, this is evidence that Saddam Hussein has got chemical weapons and weapons of mass destruction we need to invade and all that and it was obvious that the the uh, France for example is going to veto um, that that plan. So then they said okay. Thanks a lot, UN, and they went and did it anyway, right? They, they did what they wanted. Yep. So again, to the realist sort of interpretation, states are going to do what states do. Institutions are just kind of like along for the ride or whatever. Um, but there are other examples, right? So we think about like the Rwandan genocide. There's you know pretty strong evidence that the United Nations Security Council uh, had lots of information about what was occurring. There were discussions in several meetings at the Security Council about what should be done. What can we we do to to stop the genocide from happening? Actually, they, they, the first conversations were about preventing the genocide because they had a, they had information and intel that a genocide was likely to occur. Yeah. Uh, when they didn't prevent it, then the question is, well, what can we do to stop it? There was a sense uh, once the public, you know, sort of outrage started to grow and, and newspapers started to cover more clearly that the United Nations had to take action. When they finally decided to take action, though, that that decision was so limited yeah. and time bound and all kinds of different you know things that, that it seems like they were purposefully putting in to basically take very little action at all. And you can make the argument, actually, and I put this to the side, that that was the right call. Like you could you could argue maybe it wasn't in the United Nations interest to be putting boots on the ground in Rwanda. You can have that conversation. The reason, by the way, that no, I don't think I don't think you can make that argument. Well, the reason that a lot of people didn't want to take action in Rwanda was as Somalia. Right. So the, there was this. You know, attempt to have an intervention in Somalia, and you had U.S. soldiers, you know, you know, dead, dragged through the streets on on pickup trucks, and so I think that scared a lot of of you know American decision makers, but also oh, it for sure scared American decision makers. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's defensible right. as the right call. But my only point is, is regardless of what you what you think about the call itself. They made the call to like do something, and then they stalled and dragged their feet yeah. and did all kinds of stuff to prevent it from actually happening. So even if you disagreed with the call, you could you would still say the UN was ineffective at implementing Definitely. the decision. Yeah. So this is a case to me where it shows the failures of of the United Nations uh, Security Council and the structure of the organization. Right? One of the failures was because. By, by happenstance, Rwanda was one of the rotating members at the time on the Security Council, which, you know, as, as some people have pointed out, it meant that the killers essentially were part of the discussion about what to do with, about the genocide. Okay, that's a problem. But there's also just the, 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 the sort of bigger sort of structural issue about the United Nations itself. The large kind of bureaucratic nature of it combined with what some people have talked about as a very kind of clubby atmosphere where diplomats have very strong kind of rules and norms that they follow means that it's it's particularly ill-equipped uh, for people to kind of stand up and say, you know what, I think what we're doing is wrong, or I think that we should be taking action. I know none of you have the political will to do this. You're afraid. You don't want to put boots on the ground, but we need to take a strong stance. There's, there's reasons that are, I think are built into the structure of the institution itself that make it less likely that things are, are, are like that are going to happen. Most of the people at the United Nations, in their, when they're making decisions about the use of, of peacekeepers or 
putting in, you know, boots on the ground are thinking about their own country's uh, soldiers, because those are the ones that are going to have to go. The UN doesn't have its own army. It's it's basically taking, you know, peacekeepers from other countries, Swiss nationals or French nationals or Dutch nationals or whatever, and sending them to Africa to, to potentially be in harm's way. That's correct. And so if you look at it from, from that perspective, they're like, well, is this in the national security interest of the Netherlands or of France or of Britain or whatever? It's easy to come to the conclusion that no, it's not. And so although, you know, we are charged with sort of protecting the international system, the way it gets implemented is very much on a national level where you're putting your own soldiers uh, in, in harm's way. I think the last piece of this that I want to I also highlight is, and, 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 you know, some of the people that were involved in the Rwandan genocide sort of discussions at the UN pointed to this uh, very sort of strange phenomenon where we, you, you know what's going on cognitively. You get these reports that say, you know, a thousand Tutsis are being, you know, slaughtered or whatever. And you see that and you believe it. You think it's you think it's true. But there's a there's a a great distance between sitting in a in a room, this ornate room in, in New York or Geneva and the reality that's that's on the ground. And that that distance, that being removed from it, I think makes inaction a whole lot easier because you're not witnessing you know, directly the effects of your inaction over time. And so I think it's harder sometimes to get the political will generated when people are, are more further removed from, from what's happening on the ground. So, so I don't disagree with you on the research methods question. There are dogs that don't bark. I think it's probably the case that we, the UN it gets, it should get more credit uh, than it does for the things that it has prevented. I'm with you on that. I will grant the UN that. But I think when we look at particular examples and, and the sort of failures, um, uh, that, that have occurred, it's, it's, you see the problems with the organization. You see why, you know, it's not necessarily the, the best equipped to, to do the thing that it's charged with doing. Uh, and then that just leads to questions why, and are there any things that we can do to, to change the structure of the organization to make it more likely that they can prevent these types of things from happening? I agree with most of that, except for the kind of underlying idea that decisions are being made at the UN. Hmm. The idea that you make a this goes back to Zelensky's speech, right? The idea that you make a speech at the UN and you it gets to the ears of the diplomat who's sitting there, and then that dip, diplomat says, "You know what? I am going to vote for this." Right? That's not how it works at all, right? The decision making for nearly all countries is coming from state capitals, the country capitals, not from the diplomat who's sitting at the UN. They have instructions. Right. They have negotiating room. They can you know, they know they can go this far in terms of reaching an agreement. And so there is diplomacy happening. But that diplomacy is not has nothing to do with the U.N. The U.N. is the venue. It's just the 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 views and the preferences of the individual states are being expressed there. But they're coming from the capital. And that's true even in the United States, right, where instructions are coming from D.C. to New York about how to negotiate particular agreements about what to say in the UN Security Council. So this idea that there's a like an autonomous thing called the UN Security Council that's making decisions isn't right. The a- autonomy is with the states and that's because fundamentally the as much as it pains me to say this, the Security Council is itself kind of a realist institution, right? It's an expression of the of the power that states had when the UN was formed and that's why we have this weird set of five states as the as the permanent members of the of the Security Council. And it really just flows from that. The power is f- coming from the capitals and it's being expressed at the UN in some places. So that kind of limits how you can, how much credit or how much blame you can put on the UN, right? Because it's fundamentally the countries that are making these decisions and the UN is the place that they're making them. I think the reason this whole debate is kind of tricky is because of what we said at the outset, which is that UN is big, it's a sprawling set of institutions, not just one institution. And I think it's not a difficult case to make that the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council, which is what get all, gets all the press, is the least important part of the UN, right? That most of the real work that happens from the UN is coming from elsewhere. You know, maybe it's worth just like you've already mentioned a few of the organizations that are part of the UN. There are these kind of UN funds and programs that are part of UN proper, uh, like the United Nations Development Program, the World Food Program, that do like tons of work uh, uh, in terms of international development and aid 
it, it would be impossible to argue that those institutions don't matter, right? I mean, they, they clearly matter. And they might not be as effective as they could be. And that's a debate that happens a lot. But it's impossible to say that the like vast number of projects that these organizations sponsor are, are not making some difference. They are. There are these specialized agencies, the World Health Organization, um, the one of my favorites, the Universal Postal Union. These are organizations that are actually really important. The Universal Postal Union makes it possible, Marcus, for you to send a letter. People still do this, apparently. Send a letter, or like a package, okay? You order something on eBay, right? It comes from some other country. It arrives magically here in Williamsburg, Virginia. How is that possible? It's the Universal Postal Union that makes it possible because it's solving this coordination problem. Every country doesn't need a bilateral mail treaty with every other country. We have this international institution that solves that issue for everybody, makes things easier, right? So that's part of the UN that has an impact, right? It's not a, uh, it's not a big international security impact, but it has an impact. And then there are a the whole bunch of related organizations like the IEA. I'd love to talk about the International Atomic Energy Agency um, in Vienna, which is responsible for uh, securing nuclear material. This is an organization that's independent, but associated with the UN. It reports to the General Assembly and the Security Council. There are a bunch of organizations like this. And so when you talk about the overall impact of the UN, it's kind of, you know, everyone talks about the General Assembly and Security Council, but that's not where like actual things are happening, right? That's not where the UN peacekeepers are coming from, right? The decision is made to send peacekeepers in those bodies, but then the actual peacekeeping office and the actual states that are providing those peacekeepers um, are making an impact that way. Same with mediation, right? So, like, I think the things that we point to as here's where the UN was effective, it's almost never, it's almost never the Security Council, it's almost never the General Assembly. Can I just push back, and, 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 please, as, as I am want, as I am want to do, you know, this idea that that I often hear from from not just you, but from you know. Uh, let's call it rationalist uh, colleagues who sort of dismiss or, or or put less emphasis on diplomacy and less emphasis on the sort of like uh, uh, role of an institution to facilitate a negotiation. And it's really just driven by state capitals or these diplomats are not. They're not actually it's, in your view, it's sort of like they're not actually interacting in any meaningful sense. They're kind of transmitting the preferences of Moscow and Washington, D.C. and Tokyo to like one another under this umbrella organization that we call the United Nations. But the United Nations or the sort of like uh, interactions themselves that are occurring among these diplomats are almost almost irrelevant. Right. Because it's not it's not so much like diplomacy that's that's occurring, that's like changing anybody's views. It's more just kind of transmitting information and sharing information among, amongst each other. I find that hard to 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 believe given when you look at something as complicated as you know like the jcpoa right the, the iran nuclear deal which was facilitated by the united nations united nations played a role in sort of like bringing people together and sort of getting the process started a little bit if nothing else you might argue that it provided a little bit of legitimacy to the process uh it made it kind of official my sense from looking at the way that that negotiation took place and it was a long period of time was was that it was a lot was being figured out like in the rooms in in not just the United Nations, of course, but like, you know, in in Vienna, where they were negotiating a lot of this, like sitting down with paper and like writing things out and trying to find wording that was you know acceptable to, to all parties and trying to figure out deals that that everybody could live with. Sure, there was like coordination with the, with the home office and coordination with the capital back home, but a lot of it is getting figured out sort of in that in that moment. That's the essence of diplomacy. It's like you walk in with particular preferences. Maybe you walk out with those same exact preferences, but a lot of the time I think you're actually going to you're going to change and you're changing because you're learning from others about what they want. You're finding that maybe your preferences are slightly different than the preferences of other people, but maybe your preferences it turns out should be their preferences. You get you get convinced. There's like arguments. There's discussion. People change their minds. And so I, I don't really buy this idea that it's just about sort of like taking what my bosses back home want me to, to do and like trying to get the best deal as I can. I actually think that in these moments, people, it's hard to believe, could actually be convinced about certain things and change their mind and actually through the interaction itself decide, I I'm actually for this thing that I didn't think I was for of, or maybe I'm going to go back to, to DC and say, you know what? I know you told me to, to not do this, but let me give you 10 reasons why I learned in Vienna, why we should actually do this. Right? So I'm much more open to the idea that interaction itself in under the auspices of the UN or any organization, any institution, NPT, whatever actually has a meaningful impact on the, on the process itself. And it's not just about the sharing of information, but rather 
changing of, of minds and arguments and things like that all, all actually make a difference. So I'm not anti-diplomacy. I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, maybe a little. I, I think that oh. diplomacy is important and uh, necessary, but I do think a big part of diplomacy is information transmission. So what you're talking about is I went to this meeting with my counterpart from another country, and I learned something interesting about that other country's preferences as expressed by that diplomat. And I will now send that information back to my <laughs> back to my capital to help inform the policy that I will be asked to implement in this next negotiation. And there is an information transmission function that comes from talking to other people, right? So I'm not not like denying that that. I think that's a little bit of a different question than does the UN matter? Because there's no reason that you can't in fact, I think the the JCPOA, the Iran deal, is an example of where the UN didn't really matter. I mean, there were there were UN diplomats involved in the discussions, but this was it, you know, not a UN agreement in any in any way, shape, or form. It was you know driven by the countries that were involved. So like the you know a lot of the meetings were at a hotel in 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 Vienna, right? Like there wasn't even a UN building for for much of the for much of the discussion. So I, I don't know that we can give the UN a lot of credit for this, but that's different than saying that like diplomacy doesn't matter at all. I think diplomacy is important in terms of communicating between countries, learning about other countries' preferences, and finding a deal that both countries can live with. I think the cases in which a diplomat goes to a meeting with a, a, another country, hears what the other country has to say about the issue and says, you know what? I think my country is wrong about this. I'm going to go back and convince them to change their view. I think the actual incidences of that happening are very rare, very rare. And for the most part, countries are transmitting to their diplomats a set of parameters. We need to find an agreement we can deal with within kind of this general range. Um, you know, you, the diplomats know, obviously, what is acceptable to their to their governments. They go in, they try to get the best deal they can. They call home and they say, listen, this is the best I could do. Here's, here's the deal. It looks like Iran is more sensitive on this point than we thought, less sensitive on this point than we thought. Maybe we can make a better deal here. The uh, home office says, hang on, let's talk. We'll talk about that. We'll get back to you. Then, then the decision makers at the in the capitals make the decision. Call the diplomat back and says, "Here is your new information to transmit to your counterpart." And so, this information transmission function, I think, is is really important. But that doesn't mean that the real decision making power isn't still back at the capitals. I think the cases of diplomats walking into a room with a preference uh, for some type of of outcome that they then give to the other other diplomat and have a conversation, have a dialogue. And end up in a situation where the diplomats have sometimes subtly, sometimes more profoundly changed their positions, changed their minds, changed their views on the on the matter, I think happens a lot. So I, I, I think we're talking about um, sort of variation in like the extent to which the interaction between diplomats or even or even leaders is having a material effect on the sort of underlying interests and identities and preferences right. of the of the actors we disagree on that we agree that the united nations provides a forum that lowers transaction costs and all the stuff that we've talked about before for, for facilitating these negotiations i think our disagreement is more about um kind of negotiation diplomacy generally and less about the united nations well and how much credit do we really want to give the un for like having a building that people can meet in you know I mean, should we talk about that? Like, yeah. like, so if if one of the big value adds from the UN is that everyone goes there in September to talk, I mean, is that a UN thing or is that like we we picked a building, friends? Let's all meet here. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, this this is you're the the big fan of face to face diplomacy. I mean, how essential is that function of having an institution with sufficient, I don't know, gravitas that it draws leaders and diplomats to it on a regular basis so that these conversations can be held. You know, I, I think it's th this is why at the beginning of this this pod, I, I talked about how the United Nations is just seems like an ill fitting sort of structure or organization for the, the current period. I could see in the post-World War II environment where you've just experienced these, these horrible wars, you know, World War I comes along, you had the League of Nations, uh, didn't prevent anything, you know, going forward, World War II occurs. You're just so depressed about you know sort of humanity and, and the idea that maybe the way forward is to figure out a way to improve upon what the the idea behind the League of Nations was, but provide a forum for states to 
to communicate and talk. And as you know, I'm a big I'm a big communications guy. Like I think hotlines are important. I think sort of, you know, clarifying intentions whenever possible is important. I think when China doesn't pick up the the hotline when there's a balloon, you know, over Alaska is a bad thing, not a good thing. I think more all else being equal, more communication is better. And so I could imagine if I'm sitting in Europe in in the late 1940s, early 1950s, the notion that you would have a forum where countries could come together and sort of talk and, you know, sort of hash out their differences and and you know, argue, uh, uh, you know, in a building in Geneva or New York, as, as opposed to taking it to the, the battlefield, would make quite a lot of sense. And this is not the only time this has been tried. I mean, the, you know, the concert of Europe going way back was, an, was the same idea. It was like, how do we prevent war? Well, one of the ideas is let's let's have regular interactions. Let's meet every once in a while. And, and sort of was there, was there some kind of league of nations? There was a League of Nations. Ah. Yeah, exactly. So there there have been multiple attempts uh, at this at this, and I think. The, the intuition is always similar. It's like all else being equal, communication is probably a good thing. All else being equal, it's probably better to have interaction with diplomats and leaders than to not have those things. I think the problem is that from 1950 to 2023, you know, the, the not only has the world changed considerably, which it has, but the, the structure of the United Nations, because it's gotten so big uh, and encompasses, you know, so many countries now, it might not be the right forum, depending on what the problem is that we're trying to prevent or what the thing is that we're we're trying to do and this is why i think a lot of states they still send their you know diplomats to the united nations of course maybe less for the interaction and more for the visibility for the legitimacy for all that kind of stuff but now they do something more more common which is you know referred to in the literature as forum shopping the, the idea like okay well the united nations is like everybody I don't for the problem i'm facing whether it's like a trade issue or if it's a it's creating standards for postal what have you, right. uh, or or where airplanes fly, like open skies agreements and stuff like that. I probably don't need the entire General Assembly. And if anything, actually, that broad membership uh, is going to hamper the process. So let's pick an organization or an institution that's a little smaller, where maybe we don't need everybody in the world to be part of it, but at least the big players need to be there. Uh, and we can sort of organize that way. So I think I think communication and interaction is still, is still very much important. It's just that the, the UN might not be the right sort of forum anymore for the problems that the that the world faces and that might be also one reason why we've seen so many the sort of proliferation of un agencies and sort of offshoot organizations is that states have realized this this is a problem and general assembly is not where you're going to go you know negotiate a a, a a vaccine distribution agreement uh during covid for example you're going to you're going to go to you know either the world health organization or to go some other organization just going to create to solve that particular problem so this leads, I guess, to the question of whether anything could be done to redeem the UN Security Council and the current system. There's an article in the New York Times I'll put in the show notes from a, a couple of days ago. Uh, the title is, the headline is, The World Has Changed, But Can the UN? Don't Hold Your Breath. And then the subhead is, Almost everyone agrees on the need for changes, but there's little agreement on what to do and nearly insuperable hurdles to doing anything. So can uh, I just stop you right yeah. there for one, one, one. So is it, is it, do you think it's true that everybody agrees? Like if I'm, if I'm Vladimir Putin, do I really care about the problems that the UN National Security Council has? Or if I'm, if I'm Joe Biden, do I sometimes look at the United Nations Security Council and say, well, I, I would prefer it if maybe Russia and China weren't in it. But at the end of the day, I still have this veto power. So like maybe for the, the permanent members, the, the UN Security Council is actually okay, and it's like everybody else that has the problem. I, I don't. It's just that part of the article where I was sort of like, you're taking it for granted that everybody has an issue. Well, if the major powers in the world actually are fine with it, then who who has an issue? Turkey, you know, Albania. Like I, I don't know, but maybe you know, it's like if the big if the big players don't mind, then yeah. I was, so I I was going to make the same <laughs> point, right? The, 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 oh, okay. that <laughs> this idea that almost everyone agrees on the need for changes is is wrong i mean the 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 people who the u.s would love to have a change in which the russian no longer had a veto in the u.n security council <laughs> right, right? That, they but, don't like it from that perspective, right but that, yeah. that's not really to say that that uh, they agree on the need for change there is and the point of the article later on in the article is along these lines right that like there is no change possible in the u.n security council because the permanent members of the u.n security council won't say okay sure i'll give up my veto no one, no one is going to do that. And so those countries at least don't agree on the need for a UN Security Council in which there are no vetoes. Now, there are other ideas for how to reform the UN, um, and a couple of them are mentioned in, in this piece. But yeah, you're right. Like, like the, the current system serves some interests well. 
I think the United States would like there to be a U.N. that's effective in stopping the things the United States wants to stop. Right. So they're happy to strip the veto from everybody else. But there's no situation in which the U.S. would be like, let's take the current system and remove everybody's veto in the Security Council. Right. We wouldn't go for that. Uh, because right now, the United States has the ability to, like, manipulate what the U.N. Security Council comes up with um, in, a, in a way that serves U.S. interests. Right. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very sort of, um, <laughs> you know, trite thing to say. But I think a lot of the, the views of the permanent, you know, Security Council membership would be, you know, to the victor go the spoils. Right. It's like we, we came out of World War II as the major powers. And uh, there's a reason why France is, is on here. Germany is not. You know, that this is like a, a sort of system that we helped to create. We paid the costs. Uh, we had, you know, Russia, Soviet Union suffered tremendous losses uh, in World War II. The United States suffered tremendous losses. We are in a situation where uh, we're going to design the system that we want. And we, we did it from the ground up. Uh, and so looking back, you know, now, all this time later, it seems, it seems a little bit strange that we would have these permanent members. But if you think about the way it was originally created and the, the charter and the, and the sort of political uh, capital that had to be spent to create the thing, it, it's not it's not completely irrational that these countries would have, you know, the most the most power. And so it might not be fitting anymore. But at the time when it was created, uh, it, it arguably made a lot of sense. And this is a problem that plagues lots of international institutions. They're like they're like little time capsules to when they were created, because most institutions don't have the ability to change their uh, the way decisions are made within the institution effectively. They're kind of set in stone when they're created. This isn't true of all institutions, but many, they're kind of set in stone when they're created with the particular voting rules or, um, in this case, particular veto power. And that prevents any changes that disadvantage those parties. And so it just cements the status quo as of the date of whatever, right? My my beloved nuclear nonproliferation treaty is like this, right? Where it cements the status quo of five nuclear weapon states that are the only ones allowed to have nuclear weapons under the treaty, even though other states have gotten them since. That's not allowed because that's not when the nonproliferation treaty was was um, signed into, was went into force. So this is a, a common problem among institutions. And the usual solution to this problem is, you don't like this institution? Create a new one that reflects today's status quo power system, right? And there are um, some substantial barriers to doing that when it comes to a system that's as sprawling and bureaucratic and, and influential as the United Nations. So, uh, you know, I think the normal solution to this, well, that's Build a new treaty that that does reflect today's power distribution, uh, you know, is is kind of a non-starter. In this case, it's hard for anyone to imagine creating a kind of concert of nations that is empowered to prevent conflict the world over. This kind of an ambitious idea for international institutions is uh, just a non-starter right now. And I mean, no one sees any any chance for that kind of thing to be effective. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these... It's funny if you think back to some of the organizations that were either created or uh, were thought about, uh, it made a lot of sense for like a period of time as well. So I, I remember, you know, in, in what was it like the 2000s, the Bri BRICS was like the big thing, sure. right? Everything was about you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then I think South Africa, you know. It's still a thing. Uh, BRICS is still in. a thing. No, no, it's still a thing, of course, <laughs> but you don't you don't really hear as much about it. And it's sort of like it didn't take off, let's put it that way, <laughs> as, a, as an international institution. The countries are still – they still exist. Uh, but they, it, didn't, it didn't sort of take off as an institution – in quite the same way that I think a lot of people thought. Like at the time, it was like, okay, this is going to be like a realistic sort of like more global South perspective on uh, international organization. It's going to challenge the United Nations. Like we're going to see a lot of, of things happening. ASEAN is another example. Yes. I think that's been – people have talked more about that recently. But again, it's sort of like the UN Security Council is underrepresentative of the global South. We're going to have you know these, these uh, South Asian and East Asian countries, Asia Pacific countries join uh, and, and really you know provide another type of forum for countries to um, to join. So it, it's 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 not that you know the UN is is like the best at anything necessarily. I think one of the challenges is just that creating a competitor organization or a competitor institution. Uh, that can sort of be lasting and overcome these problems that you're talking about, like not just a snapshot of time when the BRICS economies happen to be doing really well. And so it makes a lot of sense to have an institution then and maybe a little less you know, sense later on. That's, that's, a real, that's a real challenge for, for these things. The other thing I'll point out too is that sometimes I mean, we talk about institutions and 
uh, one of my students the other day made this point. Like, it's 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 very vague as to like what we're actually talking about, right? Because sometimes these institutions are things like you know the JCPOA, which is like an agreement. It's like a it's like a treaty. It's a signed thing. Sometimes it's something like the Kyoto Protocol. Again, it's like a it's a treaty. Sometimes we're talking about something like the United Nations, which has like a building associated with it, and it's got like really formal kind of kind of rules and stuff. Other times it seems like what we're talking about is more just like an alliance. Right. So it's like, is, is BRICS an institution or is BRICS like a, a set of alliances? Is ASEAN an institution or is it an alliance or is it, is it both? And sometimes, you know, there's, there's overlap, obviously, between alliances and, and institutions. But it, it can be kind of confusing to think about whether we're actually talking about an institution per se, where the idea is lower transaction costs, more transparency, information sharing, et cetera, and not just a traditional good old alliance, uh, which has other sort of objectives and presumably gets created for different reasons. Something like ASEAN is a is a is not just a replacement for the UN, right? Like the idea of that is is there is a different vision for how security should be kept in the world, right? And it's an it's an emphasis on regional security rather than international security writ large. That the problems that affect our kind of neighborhood should be solved by the folks in the neighborhood, and we don't need these superpowers coming in and telling us how to run, you know, our street. And so the the kind of underlying assumptions behind regional security organizations a little bit different. It's a different model of how we might keep the peace with international institutions. We'll say, I don't think particularly effective, right? But we have seen regional security institutions play a, a role in peacekeeping in Africa and Asia. Um, and so there, there is, there is a role there and there, you know, these organizations exist and, and work in some ways. I think it's hard to see them as a replacement for the kind of ambitious agenda that we associate with the United Nations. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it also creates these weird dynamics where, you know, states sort of, sort of have to choose what forum they're going to use, you know? So if you're, if you're part of ASEAN, let's say you, you are facing some type of security threat or you have some, uh, you know, issue you know, what is the right forum to go to? I think it's, it's not always obvious. Like the, the UN, uh, the benefits of, of going to the Security Council, let's say, or the General Assembly to, 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 you know, raise your concern is the broad membership. You're talking to the entire international system. That might be better depending on what the, the actual situation is and that you're dealing with. And it might, it might also be better to choose a smaller organization, even smaller than, than ASEAN. So I think states are oftentimes left um, trying to, to figure out the costs and benefits of, I can't believe I'm using those terms as a, as a non-rationalist, but the costs and benefits of like going to this organization versus this one or this institution over, over this institution. Um, and it's, it's probably not obvious to them uh, oftentimes what the costs and benefits of each of these are. So that, that creates, you know, kind of complicated decision-making. In my view is also that as these institutions sort of proliferate, uh, it just becomes harder and harder to, um, facilitate meaningful interaction with the countries that uh, need to be interacting, right? So in other words, one of the things that I was thinking about recently was, you know, Biden um, has this sort of, I think it was the Council of Democracies or it's the League of Democracies or basically like the democracies of the world he wants to kind of bring together and, and have a, you know, discussion and interaction, which is fine. And I'm all for democracy. I, lo I love that idea. And I love having uh, a statement in the international system that says we are a democratic, you know, aligned like as a as a group and we are not russia we're not china you know north korea whatever iran but it seems to be like also the case well if the if the, the concern is china the concern is russia iran those are the countries you want to be having interaction with right you don't want to leave them out to the side you want to have institutions that you can bring them in and have meaningful discussion and conversation with them socialize uh, a little bit with them, not in the sort of martinis at a cocktail party, but socialization in the sense of like, let's better understand one another. Let's get things out in the open so that we're, we're avoiding war and avoiding conflict. So I sometimes think or worry that the international system is dividing into these sort of, you know, multi, uh, the proliferation of institutions that are based on sort of like-minded countries coming together. And I don't have a problem with that per se, if, but if, if it's at the expense of interacting with non-like-minded countries, I think that's potentially problematic. Well, Marcus, I think we've settled it. The final verdict on the UN is in. I'm glad we were able to take care of this this pesky issue in international it relations. It wasn't complicated no, at all. No, in, in uh, a mere 45 minutes. Thanks so much for joining me, Marcus. For folks who are listening, if you'd like to send us a note, you can at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Uh, you can listen to us in Apple Podcasts, in Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. Wherever you listen, we appreciate 
a review if you like the podcast. Marcus, thanks so much for doing this. I'll see you next time. Looking forward to it. So how does this postal thing work? So do, do, is there like a, a ledger and they're like, well, you know, uh, there were 12 letters sent from uh, this country to this country last year and there were only 14 or there were 14 sent the other direction. And so this country owes this country like essentially the postage of those two, the difference of those two letters. So I think we should get as deep into this as we possibly can. The Universal Postal Union is a standards organization, Marcus, that allows us all to coordinate on a particular method for addressing and sending mail. Um, And it's like, do we drive on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? Doesn't matter which, as long as we all pick the same one, right? Um, And so it's a classic kind of game theory coordination problem. Just pick one. As long as everybody can standardize on something, then we can make this work. And the Universal Postal Union's effectiveness is in reducing the friction in doing that, because otherwise we would need individual agreements between all the countries. Like, this is how we're going to handle mail between these two countries. But Universal Postal Union reduces that friction and makes it possible for you to get your eBay deliveries right here in Williamsburg. Right. But but I have a more specific question. If I send a, a letter to France, I buy that postage at my Williamsburg post office. So I'm giving, you know, 55 cents. How much does it cost to send a letter these days? Let's say it's 55 cents to the Williamsburg post office. And then it goes to France and that, that letter gets delivered for free because I didn't, I didn't, my postage didn't go to France. So how does France get compensated for the labor of delivering my letter when I haven't given it any money? So I will put in the show notes, Marcus, the Universal Postal Union remuneration rules that perfect. This is what I'm hoping that governs how much can be, you know, how, how the exchange rate works when it comes to postal purchases this weekend. There are also, there's a lot of wrinkles because many countries have uh, value added tax that applies to things that come into their, to their country. And so there are rules for how that is kind of taken off the top. Usually that's separately handled by individual country customs agencies. This is, I'm so glad that you're finally expressing an interest after all these years in these, in these postal regulations, which I think are really, really important to how, how we function without them eBay would be, um, you know, just a national phenomenon rather than international. No, look, I find I find postage. Frankly, the most interesting thing you've said so far today has been about the postage. So I, I appreciate you <laughs> uh, uh, bringing it up.